actually a perfect transition into the title of this series. If you were here last week, you heard this briefly, but let me, let me review. Started a series in 1 Peter, the ushers are passing out offering, um, which by the way, I'll say one of the things I love most about this church is um, I don't have any doubt that $4,800 is going to come in. I have no doubt. I mean, this church has proven time and time again um, that money is not their God. And when an opportunity arises, we take advantage of it. And that, again, goes to what we're talking about with this title, Sojourners and Exiles. The book of 1 Peter is a letter written by a Peter, a leader in the early church, to Christians in the region of Tur- Turkey. And he calls them sojourners and exiles. And last week I, I talked about how these two words are powerful. You can just look them up in a dictionary and get a, a dictionary definition of sojourner or exile. And that would suffice enough, but it doesn't give you the full picture. So when we say sojourner in a dictionary sense, <clears throat> we are talking about someone who kind of lives like a nomad. They don't have a home, so they're at a certain location for a bit, and then they move to the next location, therefore a bit, and move to the next location, which is fine, again, the dictionary definition. But Peter is saturated in the imagery and metaphor and literature of the Old Testament. So for Peter, when he calls New Testament Christian sojourners, it invokes a narrative, a story, and an image. And if you grew up in church and you know the Old Testament well, you go, oh, were there sojourners in the Old Testament? And you go, oh, yeah, of course. The Israelites were wandering around in the desert for 40 years. And so you go, oh, so Peter is making a parallel hill here. He's talking about New Testament Christians are in a similar situation as Old Testament Israelites were when they were wandering around the desert for 40 years. But you have to ask another question. Where were the Israelites coming from when they were wandering around in a desert? Egypt. They were in slavery and bondage to Egypt, and God supernaturally intervened and freed them from slavery and bondage from Egypt, took them around to be sojourners wandering around in a wilderness for 40 years, which would not be their ultimate home because their ultimate home was where? The promised land. And so Peter says, you, you're a sojourner. It doesn't just mean you don't have a home. It means you're like an Israelite. You've been freed, not from Egypt, but from Satan, sin, and death. And now you're in an in-between state. You're wandering around nomadically in the desert wilderness. But this is not your home. So don't get comfortable. You hear me on that? This is incredibly relevant to everything we just said. Don't get comfortable. This is not your home. You're on your way, not to a promised land, a promised land of promised lands, heaven. So likewise, the imagery of exile. There's a definition for exile, but there's a story behind it. God's people, the Israelites, were in exile in 586 BC. The Babylonian Empire comes in, destroys Israel, destroys the temple in Jerusalem, and takes many of the survivors to be captives in Babylon. So when you're called an exile as a New Testament Christian, you are like an Israelite who had to learn to be faithful to God in a foreign and pagan land because this wasn't your ultimate home. So you get this, these two images. You, as a New Testament Christian, have been freed from Egypt and you're wandering around in the desert till you get to the promised land. And likewise, you're in exile. You must learn to live faithfully in a place that is not only not your home, but it's hostile to everything you know and believe in. 
So these two images are loaded with information. Now, Peter does this all throughout the book. And I showed this, this picture uh, last week, but I want to show it again in case you weren't here. Peter, like every author in the Bible, is always referencing other portions of Scripture. And so when he says sojourner, again, it's not just a sojourner. There's, there's, there's an association. If you grew up in church, you've been a Christian a long time, you might have something called a cross-reference Bible. They're kind of cool, but they're annoying because like in size 2 font in the margins, it lets you know other Bible verses that are referenced in the current Bible verse you're reading. Now what this chart does is it takes every chapter in the Bible, which is the little white squiggly lines at the bottom, and then draws lines coming out of each chapter from where there's a connection to somewhere else in the Bible. So for example, John begins with, in the beginning was the word. And so there would be a line from John 1.1, in the beginning, going all the way back to Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God. So there's these references, they're like hyperlinks. And the crazy thing is, is like the hyperlinks go to other hyperlinks that go to other hyperlinks. The image I gave last week was, um, if you ever go on Wikipedia, and let's say you want to learn about Tolkien, look up Tolkien, you go, oh, he wrote Lord of the Rings, this is awesome, and click on Lord of the Rings, and what happens? A whole world opens up, and you're like, oh, I like Two Towers the best. I click on that, and a whole world opens up with tons of other hyperlinks. And then you go, I'm going to click on that cool elf with the bow and arrow, Legolas, a whole world opens up. And he's got a whole backstory, and you learn that his whole people, the elvish people, have a whole world and a whole backstory. And it's like endless hyperlinks, always referencing each other. This is exactly how the Bible works. And the more you read the Bible, the more you'll see all of these things. This is a zoomed-in picture on just one small portion of the Bible, and you can see there's hundreds of hyperlinks everywhere. These are the first 20 chapters of Genesis, and we can't even see it. We, we can't zoom in and have the, the without it getting pixelated because the image isn't large enough. But there's hundreds of lines just from the first 20 chapters of Genesis. Everything's referencing back and forth, and the more you understand those, the more you'll get the arguments being made in the Bible. And so... First Peter is writing to us in this room, not directly, but indirectly, as sojourners and exiles. It's not our home. Don't get comfortable. This is not the promised land. Continuing on from last week, he says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Now the first thing says, therefore. So everything we're going to see in this verse is saying, because of what just came before. That's why it's important to be here regularly and consistently. If you happen to miss, we have all the audio and now video uh, recordings of the sermons for every week in the past. So catch up on this stuff because everything that happened last week now peter says therefore prepare your minds for action it's an interesting phrase in english it's translated prepare your minds for action but literally it's it's like prepare the loins of your mind for battle and it's like we don't use that phrase really any like you know prepare your loins what does that even mean jewish men at this time would have their clothes but on top of their clothes there'd be a long outer garment that would be heavy and it'd go down to about your ankles and so it's not something you'd run around in or go to war in so if you had to to do something that involves some type of athleticism or battle what men would do is they pick up the robe 
It's like a big giant poncho. Picture that, but not as cool colors. And you pick it up and you tuck it in. And so it's, it's, it's a way to say, get ready for action. Like prepare the loins of your mind. Or maybe a modern example would be roll up the sleeves of your mind because we're going into battle. Now what are we going to do after we've prepared our minds for battle? We're going to be sober-minded and then it says to set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So we need to get, have our hope fully in Christ and preparing the loins of our mind to do so. Now, quick question for those of you who know the Bible pretty well. Um, is there something in the Old Testament that's known where God tells people to like, be ready for action, be ready to move, like gird up your loins, prepare, prepare yourself? It's in the Exodus story, in the Passover. So do you think that, you know, we're talking sojourners, exile, exile, the Exodus language is there. So it's like, you got to be ready. When God says go, be ready to go. We're going to set our hope fully. Now this is tricky because hopefully sounds like I'm saying like, hopefully things work out. The text is saying, hope completely, hope entirely, hope fully in the grace of Christ. So here's the question for you. Where is your hope fully resting? Like, is it in the comfort and ease of American life? Is it in a spouse? Is it in your, is it in your children? I'm, I, I'm not saying, like, you can't have hope, like, in your spouse. Like, I hope my spouse is a, is a good spouse. That's not wrong, but it's fully. What is the prime hope? What is your foundational hope? Because you can set your hope fully in earthly things, but they can never bear the weight of such assignment. For example, if you put your hope in your kids, meaning my happiness, my life is 100% taken from my kids. Like I do every, everything's all about my kids. My kids are God. The child cannot bear the weight of such assignment. And I've seen relationships ruined. The kid, can't, the kid can't do that. They're not meant to carry the weight that only God can carry. So spirals out of control. There's only one thing that could carry the weight of your hope fully resting in it. And Peter says, you got a hope, and it's coming to you at the end when the grace that Christ has prepared for you is finally revealed. And he goes on, as obedient children, verse 14, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Um, there's probably a lot of things conformed to the passions, that, that, what that could mean, but in, in the early church specifically and in the New Testament, the, the, the language of passions has a lot to do with, with sex, sexual immorality. So the idea is before you weren't living sexually pure lives, now you're a Christian. And we know historically the Christians were radically committed to, to monogamy and celibacy. So either get married, lifelong heterosexual monogamy, or they'd commit to celibacy. That's just a historical reality. Everyone knew that in the early church. So when you have like pagans, not Christians, writing about Christians, like trying to describe them, they usually mention two things. They say something like, they care about the poor and the needy, and they're like sexually upright moral people like the two distinguishing descriptions that set apart the early church from the rest of the world because in the roman world like you can be a an outstanding citizen and married but you'd still have other women on the side you'd have mistresses and like no one knocked you for it it was culturally acceptable 
I have my wife at home. She raises the kids. And then I have my, my mistresses. The Christians weren't like that. They were radically committed to the poor and to the needy and to holy living. That's why then Peter then immediately says, oh, yeah, this is one of the toughest verses in the whole Bible. Oh, yeah, that's why you're to be holy because God's holy. And then he quotes the greatest book of the Old Testament, Leviticus. It is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. That's heavy. You shall be holy for I am holy. Now, what do we mean by holy? Holy means in its basic definition to be set apart, but it has this like ethical dimension. It's like God is holy and righteous and good all of the time. And so he is a God not like other gods. Therefore, his people ought to be a people not like other people. So in the Old Testament, God creates rules and laws and regulations for Israel to not only just not behave like other nations, but to actually like look differently. So in the Old Testament, the Jewish people have moral laws like honor your mother and father, don't kill, care for the poor. But then they also like physically look different. So men could only shave certain ways. They could only have their hair certain ways. All men were marked out by something called circumcision. They, they had special things on their wrist and their forehead sometimes. So when you saw God's people in the Old Testament, they were supposed to literally look differently, both with their behavior and their dress. And what's the point? The point, again, is this. God's people should not look like the rest of the world. When people see God's people, they should go, there's something different there. Something different there. Now, one of the difficult things when you talk about something like this is something has crept into the, what we'll call like the modern American evangelical church. Whenever you start telling people like, you need to live holy, you need to like get your act together and be obedient, someone immediately is going to raise up and say, hey, this sure sounds like we're getting legalistic here. And if you're new to Christianity, you don't know that term, but if you grew up in the church for a long time, you know like, like oh yeah, I've seen that. And legalism is real. Legalism is where you are trying to do external religious deeds to justify yourself before God. Your, your religious deeds can't save you. God's grace saves you. But once you receive his grace, you're called to be an obedient child. That's not legalism, that's Christian living. And somewhere along the lines, like it infiltrated the church, like some, anytime someone talks about holiness or right living, it's legalism. Again, legalism is bad, but legalism is where you're trying to do something to, to earn your salvation, justify yourself before God, or justify yourself before a particular church community. Now, some of you were raised in environments like this, right? Where it's like, if I didn't do this, this, and this, it wasn't just that I was making some mistakes. It's like, I'm not a Christian. And the rest of the church, like the whole church looked down upon me. And so there's a thin line between legal, a call to legalism and a call to holiness but, man, I could tell you, we're not talking much about holiness in the modern church. And the Bible talks a lot about it. A lot. You are saved by his grace and then called unto holiness. Be holy, for I am holy, saith the Lord. So I thought about a way to, like, like how, do we, how do we make this real? There's a word. Weird. Um, weird is a weird word. Like, because it has, like, a negative connotation. Like, you know what I mean? It's like, well, that person's weird. Uh, 
But in a sense, it actually best illustrates what I'm talking about by a call to holy living. When people see you, their response should be like, oh, that's weird. So let me give you an example. Let's say you're a 20-year-old dude. We'll say you're a 23-year-old dude and you're working in construction. For those of you who have worked in construction, you know it's not necessarily the most morally wholesome environment. And so let's say one of the dudes goes, oh man, I bought, I bought uh, unlimited usage to some pornographic website and you guys, can, you guys can use it whenever you want. You have my username and password. And all the dudes are like, oh sweet man, saving 20 bucks a month. And then you go, no thanks man, I, that, I don't do that. What? What's wrong with you? Now, I'm a Christian. I think it's wrong. I, I, the only naked woman body that I want to see is my future wife. Oh, that's weird. That would be the response. You see what I'm saying? It's like, what? It, and it's not weird like in a, like you're a geek. Weird. It's like, what? It throws someone off. Like the holiness there causes someone to go, that's strange. Or what if like someone can magically see all of your, your checkbook, your credit card statements, your bank, you know, everything. And if you do the Dave Ramsey cash thing, they can see all your receipts, okay? They saw everything you spent on. But they say, oh, that just looks like an, any other American spending habits. It looks exactly, no, this is just a normal American. Or they look at it and go, that's weird. Or what if they could see your Netflix history? And everything you view online, they go, this is just like, this is exactly like mine. And they go, oh, that's weird. You don't watch such and such? You don't watch such and such? No, I I just, you what, you think they're boring? No, I actually probably really like them, but I don't want to fill my mind with that stuff. That's weird. You see what I'm saying? There's a reaction from culture when when you see like a good holiness. Because if you have a bad definition of holiness, it kind of communicates like uptight, like, get in line, God's going to destroy you. And it's like, no, no, no. It's pointing to something better than what this earth can offer. So, are you strange or weird in any of your habits, or do you look just like every other American? Peter says, Christians, sojourners and exiles, are called to holiness. They are peculiar people. They stand out. They are different. He goes on. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like, the lamb, like that of a lamb without blemish. Okay, there's something super important here. I'm not going to spend too much time on it because we, we talk a lot about it. I, I make it intentional about twice a year. How are you to call upon God? As Father. He is your good, heavenly Father. And we've talked a lot. But when you have a distorted image of Father because you had an abusive Father or a neglectful earthly Father, it affects the way you look at God. And so I've seen it as a pastor time and time again. Many of you, when you pray, you don't even realize it, but you are praying in such a way where you picture like you're praying to Jesus because he's nice big brother and then he takes your petitions over to God the Father, who doesn't even want to hear it, but he has to because he really likes Jesus. He's going to listen to Big Brother on your behalf. You know what I mean? 
And it's like your image of God is distorted and it's bad, but Jesus is sort of the good guy. The reason why you must picture God as your good heavenly father is not only because Jesus told you to, but you're never going to understand some of the commands and scriptures without having that proper picture of God. That's exactly what happens here. You call him father, and then this father is going to judge you every deed, so conduct yourself with fear. Unless you have an image of God where he's a good, loving, heavenly father who wants what's best for you, you can't read on an emotional level, God is judge, so conduct yourself with fear in an accurate manner. You're going to picture bad, evil God out to get you, and he's watching, he's like, like evil, like, you know, evil uh, Santa Claus. He knows when you are sleeping. He knows when you're awake. It's like evil. It's like he's always out to get you. But if you know, and some of you had this. You had good heaven, you had a good earthly father. So you go, oh yeah, dad was total judge at my house. And it was for our benefit. It wasn't bad. You know, it was great. I, I learned right and wrong. When I was out of line, I was disciplined. And it doesn't bother you. And you also go, I get the fear thing too, because even though my dad was loving growing up, we had a healthy fear of him. So picture it this way. Uh, let's say you're 17 years old, okay? And um, mom and dad go away on a vacation. They're going to go for a week. And in the past, um, they took you with them. But now it's like, you know, we've been raising you kids for 18 years, you know, you're, you're staying here, man. Mom, we're going to have a good time. You better make sure we even come back for you. Okay? <laughs> and he goes, and then he gives you a list of rules. Don't do this. Don't do this. You can have friends over. Yeah, have lots of friends over. I don't care. I trust you. Trust you with the house. Okay? And so for the whole week, you invite some friends over. You have some good times. And, and every so often when it's getting too crazy, your friends are, you know, bringing some grape juice on the white carpet. You're like, hey, guys, calm down. Just let's go. And then dad comes back. And you're like, how'd things go? Oh, this, I had so-and-so over on Tuesday night. Oh, did you guys drink? No, we would never do that, dad. I mean, we did try to drink as much kombucha as possible to see if something would happen, but uh, okay. Okay, son, I'm proud of you. You held down the house for a week. I'm proud of you. You know what, me and mom, we got you something on vacation, too. It's a present or something. Or if you had done wrong on that week, dad would come in and he would judge and his judgment would be based upon goodness and it would be fair. And you'd, oh, you, you, if you trusted him, would accept the wrongdoing that you've done and the consequence. Now that only happens when you have a good picture of a heavenly father and you have a proper orientation towards reverence towards him. This is where the, the fear thing comes in and it really kind of throws people off. And I, and I realize what I'm going to say is, is probably counter to everything you maybe have been taught and maybe you've said. I've said stuff like this, so don't feel bad. I'm not targeting anybody. But kind of in the, in the Christian world, whenever the Bible talks about fearing God, immediately people go, well, that, that's, that word really doesn't mean fear. It means kind of like have, a, have some respect for God. Raise your hand if you've heard something like that or you've said something like that. Okay, I have, everyone has, if you've been a Christian a long time. But it's like, when you read the Bible, it sure looks like they fear God. 
And when it says fear, fearing God is the beginning of wisdom, and when Isaiah is brought into the presence of God, and he says, woe is to me for I am undone, or when the Bible says no man can see God and live, I think it actually means like fear God. And so how do you, how do you make that work with the idea of a good heavenly father? Exactly what I just said. Or let me give you a better, better example. Maybe not a better one, but another one. Um, my daughter has a healthy fear of things. She's four. But I've taught her a lot about, you guys know what catch and cook videos are? Catch and cook videos on YouTube? It's where like people go out into the wilderness and they like try to catch creatures or eat edible stuff just like the old-fashioned way, no technology or something, or, or sea foraging. Okay, so I take my daughter sea foraging. Sea foraging is when there's a low tide, extremely low tide. The intertidal zone that's usually covered by water is now exposed, and you can go out there. So you get all kinds of sea life. You get um, limpets, chitons, different types of seaweed, you know, wakami, sea, sea cauliflower, um, black turban sea slugs. Now, my kids know what's edible and what's not because we take the sea snails, we bring them home and cook them. They're good. You can actually eat them. Seaweed, most seaweed's edible, not all. Be careful. They're called witch's hair. Looks a little something like this. Um, poisonous. Um, well, it's just really acidic. But my kids know this. And I go fishing. So, like, I've caught stingrays and, and stuff. So, so we're at Monterey Bay Aquarium. And you know they have that section. Have you ever been there where there's, like, an open little swimming pool with the stingrays? Now, all the kids who go there... They've never caught real stingrays. They've never, like, tried to catch things in crevices at low tide and have a crab lock onto a finger, like my son. Um, and so everyone just goes to the amusement park. It's, of course it's safe. And you just go, oh, you go, oh, pet them. And I tell my daughter, oh, you want to go touch the stingray? And she goes, like, looks at me, no. She had a healthy fear of the animal because she knew what that animal could do. And she didn't want to touch it. So it wasn't about, like, those kids are more brave. It was like, no, those kids haven't seen a, a real stingray. Like, my kids, they've seen them on the back of those and grab them with pliers and we release the, the, the stingray. So Anaya's like, nah, I'm going to touch that. And I go, no, no, it's okay. The stinger's been removed. God's holiness. You can't be brought into the presence and survive that. Someone has to take the sting of holiness. Someone has to make you clean. Someone has to be, make you pure so that you can go into the presence of holiness. Not because the holiness is bad or it's out to get you, but the sheer nature of holiness is dangerous. Like the stingray. Another thing I do is uh, ocean kayak. So I go to the ocean a couple miles on a little plastic boat. It's not even a boat. It's like a know what to call kayak it's like just this 12 foot little thing if you lean too left you fall over lean too much this way you go over but I go fishing in the ocean and uh, for any of you who've done ocean kayaking or even gone fishing in small boats in the ocean you you better know you should have a healthy fear of the ocean right like the ocean is no joke now I love the ocean I love it I want to spend I can go a whole day in a kayak sitting this tight trying to catch fish I love the ocean but if you have a healthy fear of it you you're, you're not a coward. You're actually smart and wise. Because in our ocean, it could be a beautiful sunny day, and you can see all the way to shore for two or three miles out in a kayak. kayak. And then like that, fog can roll in, and you can't even see to the front row. You're done. 
You can't tell any direction. You were fishing with your buddy, he's gone. Just completely no orientation. Or like one time you see like a great white shark goes by. It's a powerful sight to see. You're in awe, you respect it, I love it, I want to see more of it. But I also don't want to be cavalier and mess around because that's a great white shark and I understand what it could do and I understand what the ocean could do. Jesus says, you fear men. You shouldn't. Why fear only that which can destroy body when you should fear the one who can destroy body and spirit in hell? That's Jesus. <laughs> that's, that's him who's telling you about a lovingly heavenly father, but also simultaneously showing, yo, like, fear God. It's the beginning of wisdom. And the interesting thing about the scriptures is whenever people have a proper fear of God and they desire to live in holiness, what is God's immediately res- immediate response to fearing him? What does he say? Fear not. It's sort of like, stand down, it's okay. And so my concern is that in the kind of modern church, we just have a, a nonchalant, cavalier, like anything goes attitude with God. Oh, he's, you know, he's just, he's never going to judge, you know, what people love to say. Jesus would never judge anybody. It's like, oh my, it's like, dang. Be holy, for I am holy. And then your good father is going to make this world right. He's taking you to the promised land. You can trust him. He's a good God. He loves you. He wants what's best for you. And in light of that, know that he's judge. And everything we do, we're going to have to give an account for. So don't just be nonchalant about it. Show proper reverence to God. And then the section ends. He was foreknown, speaking of Jesus, before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. This, this line... Christ was chosen to deal with sin before the foundations of the world. Now get this. Before you were even brought into being, before you existed, before your parents ever went on a date, before you sinned, before you did your deepest, darkest, most sinful act ever, before any of that, before the foundations of the world, it was determined that Christ would be your solution. Jesus wasn't plan B. It wasn't like God was trying to do a bunch of stuff. And then in the last days when God had exhausted all of his options, he sent Jesus. Plan A from the beginning was Jesus to be the solution to humanity's plight. God knew it for all eternity. And in this time 2,000 years ago, what was known by God for all eternity was made known to us so that we might be adopted as children. Okay, so here's the challenge. And the ushers can pass out, begin to pass out communion. Peter in this section tells us to do three things. We are to hope fully in the grace of God. He calls us to live holy, and he calls us to fear rightly, fear the right things. And so before we take communion, I want to walk through those th- three, three things briefly and challenge every single person to pick one area. Pick one area where you are going to commit to, to doing something different, to changing. It's the first area, hopefully. Where is your hope today? 
Is it in a spouse? Is it in kids? Is it in the comfort of American life? Or is your hope looking to the future for Jesus? Now, I got to be real with you. This is probably the hardest thing for us to do out of all three of these things because we don't live as sojourners and exiles because our life is so easy. We're supposed to be looking at our life right now as wilderness wanderings, but we live in the greatest country with the greatest standard of living ever imaginable. So we begin to think this is our home. We begin to build houses for ourselves here and now, not knowing we are called to be sojourners and exiles on our way to our home with God. Now, when you're in the persecuted church, when people are hunting down your friends and family because they believe in Christ, it's easier to put your hope fully in Christ because you ain't got any other options. And some of you have been in that place. You ever been in a place in life where you go, God, you are all, all I have, and you mean it literally. You've got nothing. And you cling to Christ like he's the only treasure you got because he is the only treasure you got. And so it's really easy to make this place our home and get comfortable when we have this easy, easy of a life. Our lives are like heaven compared to the hell of others. But don't mistake it for one minute. This is not heaven. This is not the promised land. This is not your final home. Put your hope fully in Christ. Second person I'd like to challenge is on the holy thing. Is there an area of your life that's incompatible with Christian living? Meaning in a sense that's all of us because no one's perfect. But there is a clear area in your life that you are living that is incompatible with Jesus. Maybe it's a sexual sin. Maybe it's like what we talked about, what, what you're watching, what, what, what are you consuming? What are you looking at online? Or how are you spending money? What, I don't know what it is, but there's an area in your life that is incompatible with Christian living. And God is saying, no, be holy for I am holy. Not to earn your salvation, you, you gotta get the order right. Because I've saved you, now as obedient children walk in holiness. For the third person, fear rightly. A lot of fear in our culture right now, right? Some of you don't ever watch the news. Some of you watch it all the time. If you're like me, like, like I, I like study it and like try to predict what's going to happen. I see this cultural thing happening here and I go, this is going to lead to this, this is going to lead to this. And because I, I love history so much, I see all kinds of connections and I go, oh, dude, we're in trouble. Like, we are in trouble. So the point of this is not to say, fear rightly, we're not in trouble. The point of this is to say, why worry about the shifting sands of culture when the word of the Lord stands forever? Why worry about what can happen to body when Christ says, I can save body and spirit? Christ's promise isn't that the world is not never going to have anything bad. In fact, no, if you're living in the good times, watch out, because there's always bad times around the corner. But take courage, for I've conquered the world. So fear rightly. Fear rightly. Fearing God is the beginning of all wisdom. And so pick one of these three. As we begin to take communion and, and focus our attention on Christ and his work and sing a closing song to him in praise, What's one area of these three that you could be? Don't try to pick all three. That's too much.
we grade on the curve here. So if you get you one of these, that's 33%. That's like an A. It's got to be one. And so as we enter into communion, let's stand. There's a reason why we care about these things. It's because God has adopted us into his family by his death on the cross. And more importantly than even just maybe our own personal sanctification, although that's incredibly important, is when we do these things correctly, others benefit. It's like what, I, what, what Sam came up here and told you. When Christians are generous, it's not just for your sanctification, it's so children get food in the name of Jesus. And so there's like ripple effects. It's not just about our personal sanctification. It's about the mission of God going throughout the world. And that matters. In a world full of suffering, trust me, that matters. And so on the night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread. And he said, this is my body. It's broken for you. So Lord, we take this in remembrance of what you did on our behalf. And the cup represents his blood spilt on our behalf. Jesus says, do this and proclaim my death and resurrection until I return. So Lord, we re-pledge our allegiance to you and your kingdom. Father, in this closing time, may we hope fully in you May we be in awe of the fact that although you are pure holiness, you have adopted us into your family. And may we fear you as good children fear and love their earthly fathers who are good to them. Keep our emotions in balance. Keep us in the right place. Lord, we love you. You are so good to us. Help us to praise you and cherish you above all things. In Jesus' name. Mm -hmm.